You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined today by Sean, um, as always, and not Rick. Instead, we have someone on our podcast. Her name is Rosemary Litoff, and she is with a company called C2 Financial, and she deals with reverse mortgages. I thought Rosemary would be the perfect person to bring on this podcast to talk about a very particular topic that is relevant to marketing and really just all things that we do in business. That is how to, you know, the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, the concept behind How to Win Friends and Influence People. I thought, who better to talk about this than someone who has a serious uphill battle in winning clients for what it is that she does. So welcome to the show, Rosemary. Thank you for having me. <laughs> awesome. So um, just to start out, I would love to, you know, if you would give our listeners a little bit of background on yourself and kind of how you came to be in the position that you are, you know, selling reverse mortgages. Okay. Started out in accounting. Nine years old, I was taking my dad's invoices and paying his bills. And I loved the sound of the perforation when you would separate a bill from the statement. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> Went on to a degree in accounting from there. Decided that was horribly boring. I graduated with a degree in accounting, went back to school, got a degree in marketing. And I thought marketing is you go to the store and you buy groceries. Well, I learned it's a little different than that. Graduated with a degree from Loyola in marketing. <laughs> and I was VP of a company called Right Start Catalog, which was infant and baby products. And it was one of the first to get all these kind of neat products from all over the world and figure out where on a page they would be the most beneficial. So I was doing the analysis part, which is why I was hired because I had the accounting brain and we'd figure out where to put the products on the page. And we were into early inkjetting. I visited a printing plant. I always talk about in Menominee Falls where the ink was literally dropped into the river. I mean, think about wow. what years this was. <laughs> so a little bit before environmental controls. I think they make Disney movies about that, that plant. <laughs> Very like interesting. Gully, I think it was called Fern Gully. Anyway, go ahead. Anyway, uh, so that was kind of interesting. Stayed there for a while and then moved over to Good Sam Club. And I was the VP of marketing there as well. I was the one responsible. I would go to very exciting places. My people that I, you know, in my business associates, business associates were going to Hawaii and San Francisco and Vegas and all these wonderful places. I went to Pomona, California and Perry, Georgia, where else uh -huh. do you put 12,000 RVers? Yep. And where are you when someone is, I'm not only running the shows, but it's responsible for the volunteers and the exhibitors and all entertainment, all of that. And oh, by the way, someone will come up to me and say, my tires are stuck in the mud. What do I do? <laughs> I said, well, here's a shovel. Or do you want to call the auto club of your choice? So these Move. are these are the locations that like the biggest attraction is the biggest ball of yarn in the world or, or like yes. the largest exactly. pizza was once made here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but again, it's 12,000 RVers that are gathered together to have their barbecues and all that kind of stuff. So I ran that for a while. And then let's say, oh, I became a widow and I had to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I had a friend that was had a office in the San Fernando Valley. And it was kind of like a real estate office, but it was mortgages. 
And he said, you're very good at marketing. You're very good at accounting. Come run my office. So I said, okay, fine. So I did. And he said, you want to do mortgages. I'll take care of your license. I'll take care of your desk fees. I'll do it all for you. You've got the right personality. I said, I'll never get into mortgages. That's use car salesman people. I will mm-hmm. never get into anything real estate related. Well, never say never. Because I sat around and I saw the folks in that world and I saw the lack of the corporate bureaucracy that I was running away from. And I said, hmm, maybe I could do this. People kept saying, get into reverse, get into reverse. And I kept saying, no, I don't like the rules. I don't like the guidelines. These are folks' biggest assets for the most part. And I I don't like the way they are treated. So I waited, waited, waited. The rules started changing. I said, hmm, I'll take another look at this. And I did. I went back to school at 70 years old and got what's called a CRMP degree, Certified Reverse Mortgage Professional. 20% of people that even take the test pass it, and there's only less than 200 of us in the U.S. But I was bound and determined when I'm working with people's biggest asset, I'm going to know what the hell I'm doing. And I'm going to have the lenders calling me personally when I have a question. None of this... We'll figure it out as we go along. And I, a couple of years ago, broke from doing traditional mortgages because I don't want to handle all the changes in the laws and the guidelines and all that. I have a partner that does traditional mortgages, does it very, very well. And I stick to reverse. Mm-hmm. And I'm a happy camper and landed here and um, love, love, love what I do. Passionate about what I do. It's more about relationships than transactions. My referrals come from financial planners for the most part because the folks are seeing their assets and their portfolios doing this, yet their biggest asset, which especially over the last few years has grown exponentially, and how the hell do I get into that? And I always tell people if I was mean, I'd come over and put a hammer to your walls of your house and money would pour out. And that money is your equity but what is it doing for you now? You're dipping into a portfolio that may or may not last as it's projected, and you're sitting on this big asset here. So you have a career in marketing, and you have experienced success in marketing, but uh, you had this view of mortgages in particular as though it was a used car salesman type thing. What did you think you would have to do like at that time if you were to try to sell stuff is kind of what I what it sounds like you thought you were going to have to just try to sell stuff and your view of selling stuff was bad uh what did you think it was going to be like and what did you find out it was actually like what i thought it was going to be like is just get the transaction done no matter if it's good for the client or not you know mm-hmm. just make it happen you've got to do this many transactions etc I ran away from that. My personality doesn't do well with that. Yeah. So I approach it. It's got to make sense. And I always say I turn away more loans than I take on because it doesn't make sense for the borrower. Oh, but so-and-so told me. I said, I don't care. If you pan out the numbers, you're in a much better situation now. Stay where you're at. So I come from that perspective. And I really, really love that a lot. I think it's a really important cornerstone of marketing is, um, you know, when, when sometimes when people think, oh, I have to tell people about my product or, you know, what I do, they, um, they always assume that it's, it's, they make it really hard on themselves because they think, oh, I need to try to sell this thing to them. My goal is to sell the thing. Like you said, a transaction, 
I need to make a transaction, whether it's for a $50 board game or a, you know, whatever, $400,000 reverse mortgage. They come at it from the wrong perspective, thinking the end goal is to sell something. And if, if the end goal is to sell something at whatever cost, then that is where that kind of, you know, sorry for any honest used car salesman listening to this, but it's generally you get a bad rap because the used car salesman needs to sell, needs to move that car off his lot at any cost. So he's going to say anything he can to make the person that was marginally interested in it to, to buy it, you know, to buy that car and take it off the lot so he can finally make some money from it and replace it with something else, you know? And I think that that's a really common feeling, but like, I guess I've never really asked, why do you think that that is the common feeling? Where does it come from? I know where that's coming from because people say that person's going to steal the money out of my wallet kind of thing. For me, if I served breakfast in the morning to my son when he was growing up and he didn't like what I had, he wasn't rejecting me. He was rejecting he didn't like the eggs. Mm -hmm. Or the waitress comes along the restaurant and says, do you want coffee? And you say, no, you're not rejecting her. You just don't feel like coffee. Mm -hmm. So... That part of sales to me is just move on and give the customer, what are the customer's goals? Mm -hmm. What do they want? They don't want coffee that morning. They want something else. For me, they don't need a reverse mortgage today. Maybe they'll keep my information and get it to me tomorrow. But the feeling that folks still have, especially my generation has, is some everybody's out there to just sell me something and take my money out of my wallet. And the car salesman becomes, you look up car salesman in a dictionary from 1950, you're going to see car salesman, you're going to see pushy salesperson equals car salesman. Mm -hmm. That's just a bad rap that they have gotten. It is interesting. And I do think that a lot of the way that our kind of maybe our, our minds as a collective society, if you will, we run, not only do we run from salespeople but we run from advertising. And I think that that was a learned behavior because, you know, back in, you know, like 1900s, the early 1900s, let's say you had the grocer and there was one in every town and the towns were small enough that generally speaking, the grocer knew everyone who shopped there, knew everyone's name, knew everyone's order. You know, Mrs. Smith gets two gallons of milk every week and a dozen eggs always on Monday morning at 1030. I'll have her order ready, right? For, for when she comes in and she, you know, she pays and I, and I, you know, continue. And it's a, it's just a matter of like caring about Miss Smith as a person and her family. You don't ask, Oh, you know, are you looking to buy something today? Miss Smith? No, it's like, I have your order for you. Like always, did you want to add anything else? And how are your kids? And, and that kind of thing. That was a joyous time to buy something. You know, I mean, I, as, as it stands in my head, uh, movies that play in my head when I think about the early 1900s, like you may be robbed at gunpoint by cowboys or something, but in general, you'll never be done wrong by the grocer, you know, who's just, it's like the, I don't know, like everybody's second dad or something, you know, <laughs> being the groceries. That's like my vision of what that was like. But then we kind of get into, let's say, as you said, like the 50s. Uh, multi-level marketing starts to become a thing, you know, with, with Amway and, and others. And you have door-to-door -door salesmen. That was a very popular way to sell. And people at that time were very, very welcome and open to receiving outside visitors. 
with, oh, you've got a vacuum? Yeah, tell me about the vacuum. And then they would try to demonstrate it and they'd try to sell it. And people were happy to receive that type of sales. But after a while, I, I think that type of uh, salesmanship, the direct door-to-door sales, knocking on doors, banging on doors, it's still something people do to this day. But it's not something people welcome anymore, right? It's a phenomenon. I feel like we try now to protect ourselves from advertising because you know we subconsciously protect ourselves from advertising because we don't like being sold to. But we do love to buy stuff. But only stuff that we want, you know? And so how do you make this? I, I loved what you said, this idea behind transaction versus relationship. You you spoke them as though selling a thing, making a transaction with someone is the antithesis of a relationship. How does a relationship make, you know, it, how is it the exact opposite end of a transaction? And, what, and like, how do you rationalize that? Can you help us I feel like helping us really understand what that difference is would be, would be awesome. Well, a transaction is cut and dried and boring. Send me your documentation and, you know, I'll get it through and the lender needs this and all that. I don't work like that at all. How are the kids? Oh my goodness. You went to a football game yesterday for your grandson. How was that? How I'll call just out of the blue and say, this is the time of the year your gladiolas should be blooming. And you stayed in the house and we cried over the gladiolas because you didn't have to leave them. Are they still blooming beautifully? That's the relationship part. The transaction part is kind of, you know, where the world to me is going is just put in the information and out pops your product. Mm -hmm. It's no more people to people face to face. You spoke about door knocking. Talk about the Edward Jones folks. I mean, that's what they do to start their business. And they do that today. And their new people do that today. Most people will not open their door. People have gotten away from what we learned in marketing, which is get yourself belly to belly with people. You know, now how many texts do you get a day? How many emails do you get a day? How many voicemails do you get a day wanting to sell you something? I'm the one that's out there on the road meeting people face to face. I'm a human being and I want to talk to other human beings. In today's world and in my world of seniors, doctor's offices will tell me much of the reason they're so overbooked today is because people that are, quote, chronologically advanced are making appointment at the doctor, make up some symptom, just have somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. And that's all being missed in today's world of Instagram and Facebook, et cetera. It's I think I, I feel like distant. people that fool around on TikTok are kind of like um, uh, someone who is chronologically advanced making an appointment with the doctor just to talk to someone. They're shut up in their house. A lot of, a lot of people are this way where they, they're on social media and it's the only socialization that they yes. really receive. Uh, because they keep to themselves, they keep kind of in their box, in their silo of, of you know, a very, very few, you know, people that they talk to. And social media is their outlet to the world. And it can actually be quite a damage, as we can see from many studies that have come out about social media. We can see the same effects of loneliness in young, as well as, as you've said, chronologically advanced folks without a lot of people to talk to. It's, it's, a, it's sad. It's just, to me, it's sad and it's harmful. You know, there's studies and you know the studies that are showing what's going on. I mean, with children that were on Zoom 
during the pandemic, absolutely no social skills, right? And then all of a sudden now they've got to return to a classroom, especially um, the elementary school level. Mm -hmm. And they're behind not only education-wise, but socially. They don't know how to interact with others. And it's, it's a very, to me, it's very sad and very harm, a lot of harm. So I'm the one that's out there in front of people. And I've got colleagues of mine that love Zoom. They meet the new client on Zoom and they transfer the docs and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they, and, and that's not how I run my business. I'm out in front of people. You're wasting so much time. Uh, no, I'm not. People want me in their houses and they tell me their stories, sometimes more than once, but that's okay. It's about the relationship and about what I'm bringing to the table. And I've got stories, they've got stories. Their children are far away. Nobody talks to them. It's lost in today's world. And I think it's harmful. Mm-hmm. Something that comes to my mind, and we talked about used car salesmen, is the advertisement of cars changed quite drastically from, if you look at advertisements of cars, TV advertisements in the 50s, they're very much focused on features and durability. And it's an item that someone needs and uh, to be useful. But I suppose as things as abundance increased, the the need turned into want. So the marketing messaging changed as abundance sort of spread and people had more disposable income where it less it became less about ration, like rational details of this is why this is superior than that. It became more about emotional fluff and how does this product make you feel? And that's where you should have had this transition between, I suppose, the rational to the emotional. And have you seen that transpire in your lifetime? Or, or not? Oh, absolutely. Today, you go to buy a car and they're all packaged together with all this stuff, you know, that you're not going to use half of it. But there's been wants and needs for it. And the manu- it's cheaper to put it into one package as opposed to when you used to buy a car, you could check, do you want air conditioning? Do you want standard or, or um, standard transmission or automatic transmission or do you want this? Now they're all packaged together and it's it's kind of like it just becomes a generic something. You know, you notice there used to be so many colors. All of a sudden now there's, you can get red, silver, gray. You know, all of that has changed. But people, cars have become like a consumable kind of a thing. You know, it's not the personalizing that it used to be. I just took a two-week trip. I was on an airplane. I just filled the seat. And then the next person's going to come along and fill the seat. Forget about the delays and the cancellations and ending up in Chicago when it should have been something. I mean, it was a crazy, crazy trip. <laughs> but I say it was a great trip because I got to places that I hadn't gone to. But the stewardesses and the the stewards, wherever they are on the airline, they're just doing, it's more, gen, the world's become so generic. Mm-hmm. The personalizing is done. Right. Seems uh, quite easy to offend someone when you're trying to personalize service for a stranger, unless you know them. And I, I find that too. You know, in in many ways, people try to keep to themselves to avoid pain. You know, in, in a very hedonistic mindset, they try to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. And the way that that has become quite common nowadays is through what I what I I don't know that I've coined this term, but I use it all the time: tribes. People sort themselves into tribes of like-minded or like uh, similar situation individuals. And that's not, oh, that's not bad necessarily, but it helps someone, uh, reminds me like at the Tower of Babel, 
you know, like when God came down and confused the languages of everybody, it was the the language that was the major determining factor of uh, who am I going, you know, where, where am I, uh, you know, do I feel safe or not, right? It was people organized by languages at that time. And, and now I find, of course, you know, that's true today, but people that do the same things, like the motocross guys, the board game players, the, you know, musicians, I mean, people tend to congregate over a particular thing you know, something they all do together, they all have in common together. So it, it's like a safe place to be. I know that, you know, you, you probably are looking to get in front of groups of elderly people for education or something like that. And I know elderly people tend to travel in packs, you know, with the same sort of tribal mindset. How would you say this, this kind of tribal marketing concept, um, how does it play in your day-to-day operation? Do you feel it? As well. Oh, absolutely feel it. Um, I volunteer at the Safari Park here in San Diego. That's and the awesome. best part of that is I get to tell people where to go. And I love yeah. that. That's my tagline. Where do you want to go? But <laughs> there's all the nations of the world are there. The little children come up and say, my mommy doesn't speak English. Can you tell me how to get to the elephants? You know, just, I mean, I see strollers that would probably cost as much as my first car did. You know, so just the getting out part. My line that I always come back to is I was, I think I was president of the debating team in high school. And I loved it because not that it was my opinion, but I'd learned, I don't care what the political stuff that's going on today is, there's always something to learn from the other side. But people that are one of one of one area, they only listen to that area. And they crowd into that area and they don't want to know anything because, but they don't learn anything. They're only fostering what they already know. There's no growth going on there. And I think that's so divisive. I believe it was, so it was a novel that I read by H.G. Wells called The Time Machine. And it oh, was Oh, I think this, I read that. Okay. There's the haves and the have-nots. Yes. Right? Okay. I, I was going to, it was. It, you're, it was I think you're right on the right track. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the haves were, you know, they supposedly enjoyed superior genes that made them look more attractive and the have-nots were um, ugly and monstrous and they were seen by the haves as ugly and stupid. And um, it led to, basically led to war between the haves and the have-nots. And I want to say the haves were inside this city with high walls and the have-nots were always supposedly trying to like break the city down and can't really remember a whole lot more other than that. But what the, the major impression on me was it was a sci-fi novel. HG Wells is like a pretty prolific sci-fi um, author. Mm-hmm. What was, it just left the, the major impression on me was the haves and have nots. I think Dr. Seuss even did like a, a book, a children's book on, on something very similar. And he just, it was like, it ends in nuclear war, you know, where we don't like each other and we're just going to stomp, stomp each other out. But if we just stop and listen, then we, we discover that we have much more in common than we all expected. And I think that nowadays, what I feel is this concept of the tribe, it, it gives people some glue, you know, like there's this, it's very easy to separate from somebody you don't know. It's very easy to, especially on social media, you see somebody that gives a counter opinion to what it is that you believe. Uh, your natural inclination is to share your opinion. And 
then that person may very well say, well, you're wrong because of X, Y, Z. And then, of course, it begins the argument that every troll on the internet loves, where I read the first line of what you said, and then I write my response. You know, I'm not reading all that you say. I don't have time for that, but I'm sure willing to give you four paragraphs of why you're an idiot and, um, you know, and nobody's friends at the end. And I... (laughs) You know, someone will say something and I'll say, what's your source? Oh, it was on Facebook, so I know it's true. Well, you know, it's like, I don't mind discussing things, but what's your source of your information? You know, I'd like to go back and research that. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, well, it was on the first line of Facebook. So, of course, it's true, but people don't do that. They just, exactly like you say, they go down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Could have been a Babylon Bee article, for all I know. (laughs) That's so sad. I mean, oh, my God, that is is so sad. And... The this whole thing with this chat, you know, AI stuff. Oh my God, where's critical thinking going to come into this? Well, Chat GPT does my critical thinking. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With again, the generation's going to take care of me. I want them to be smart. I want them to be critical thinkers. And no, that's going away. The mm-hmm. whole banned books thing makes me crazy. Um, just where is the learning part going to come from? It's not, you know, this, this concept of tribes and having, um, just a feeling safe in in a group. I I think that there's a, there's a huge difference, you know, when, when let's say two strangers that have never met each other on Facebook have an argument, there's uh, no glue, as I said before, nothing that would keep them together. But when, Two people that share a hobby, for example, let's say we're, you know, we have a huge board game audience and we have a board game group. Let's say, you know, you, you have a question about a board game and it maybe is involves politics somehow or whatever. There's, there's always a certain level of respect and, and forbearance when we have this thing in common. It's like, yes, I may disagree with you on the political thing. But we both love games. So let's, and, and you'll see on a regular basis, whatever the topic is, whatever the hobby is that, that you share in common, you'll see regularly, um, why can't we all just get along and do more of the hobby that we like? You know, right. and uh, it will, it's always an opportunity for refocusing on what unites rather than what divides. And that's what I find so interesting about tribes or tribal marketing nowadays is that when you have something that is divisive, the tribe and the reason I feel that people seek out the tribe to belong to is so that they can get back to, so really they have an excuse to get back and be nice and to kind of this overarching theme of like, I know you disagree with me, but we do like this thing together. Maybe we should just focus on that. Right. You know, you can always have a third person come in and act as the voice of reason these, this is very common in Facebook, a uh, very common phenomenon in Facebook groups. And it's an excellent way to moderate a community without having to bring the band hammer out. And, you know, you can say, look, we're all here congregating around this particular thing. Let's keep on topic and not dive further down this unnecessary rabbit hole that's, you know, uh, of, of uh, offense. And um, I think that that's an interesting thing that we can kind of leverage for marketing success. I mean, it's more like understanding 
your community, understanding what unites them and what they care about is really important when you're trying to sell something to them. So how, in, in your experience, how do you, you know, with reverse mortgages, I know I, I sell board games, I, I sell marketing services and, and that sort of thing. And you sell reverse mortgages, but there's this, you know, the, your tribe and how, what do they care about? Like, what are the things that you talk to them that, that would be the quote unquote unifying things that matter to them? And how do you use that to maybe establish common ground or how do you use that to sell something? You know, I mean, it sounds quite used car salesman when I put it like that, but that's really what it's all about. You, you generate trust with someone and they're willing to listen to what you have to say. Right? Well, the trust comes from 99% of my business is referrals. So Andrew's mother is saying, geez, I wish I could travel more. I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. But boy, retirement wasn't what I thought it was going to be. So Andrew calls his mom and says, you know, I know someone and maybe there's a way that you can travel more. So Andrew and mom and I sit down around a round table in a kitchen and we just chat and I show you son and I show mom that you're sitting in a house the house has gone up in value. You're making a mortgage payment of $2,000 a month. What if that $2,000 a month went away? And what if you could get this much cash and do whatever you want with it? Oh, but then there's no money for my children. Oh, yes, there is, because I'll show you on a reverse, you're only allowed to take a certain percentage. So, and by the way, your children are doing fine and they don't want your china and your silverware for the most part. <laughs> They're doing just fine. But- in this golden year period, golden years of your life, you do have something that could turn your life around. And that's what I do. That's very interesting. I think that um, the, so let's, let's talk about, there's this concept. So we, uh, how we know each other for, for, our, for the edification of everybody listening to this podcast is uh, we frequent a networking group together called BNI and um, I, I pedal my marketing services. I don't know if pedal's the right word. <laughs> More like I ask for the nerd that has a really great idea in, a, in his parents' basement. Uh, that's who I want to talk to, you know, and Rosemary is saying, hey, if somebody, if you know somebody that is in, in a situation like you had just described, then please refer them. Uh, there, there is such a thing, though, as the trust referral curve. Would you mind kind of explaining the concept of the trust referral curve and because people aren't just going to refer you because, Oh, I'm new in this group and my mom needs a reverse mortgage. So I'm going to just refer to you because you're the, yeah. that's not going to happen. Right. So how does, how does this actually work? You know, well, in real life, in real time, I can tell you, I got a call last night from a friend of, Oh my gosh, more than 20 years who is now she's become my partner. She does traditional loans. I do reverse. And we worked together 20 years ago when I was in that world. And she says, she's got a friend of 20, you know, she's known for years and years and years. And this person really needs to do a reverse. Will you call them? So she sent me all the contact information. I'm going to call them today. But that trust factor, and she wrote to him, she said, I've known Rosemary 20 years. She's at the top of her game in what she does. You could use these services. I'd like you to reach out to her. So that trust part has already been built. 
I didn't, because he's already called someone else. She forwarded that information to me. Somebody he found, I would say in the yellow pages, but who knows, mm-hmm. online or whatever, and gave him numbers that are just don't look right. And I say, well, I can't speak to that, but I can make a phone call. We can chat. You, you know, friend and I will chat. But I've already got her in my corner that she would not have referred me to somebody she's known for 20 years to do anything for this person. So that trust factor is already built. And that's how I like to work. And when I start the conversation, I'll say how fortunate that we both know XYZ and have that have a relationship with such a fine human being. And she's in my little quiver. That person is in my quiver. And I know for a fact is in your quiver as well. So let me, um, from what I'm hearing from listening to this conversation, doing more listening than, than speaking, is that it really comes down to caring about people and seeking to legitimately help them and be sincere in, in your desire to help them as opposed to trying to get something for them. In a sense, it's, it's to serve people, not be served by people. I think ultimately is what we're, we're getting down to. And I think there has been a large shift in marketing, as we've spoken about, more towards viewing people as a commodity, as a resource. Um, we call we even call people consumers um, or human resources as, as if we're like something part of this earth that can be like mined and then like utilized. And there's a quote here that I, I want to read by a, a business a person called Paul uh, Mazur, who was a colleague of Edward Bernays. And everyone who understands Edward Bernays, he's the, the forefather of propaganda. It's sort of modern modern marketing was sort of birthed by him. But this is what uh, this business partner of Edward Bernays said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And that's kind of where we are. It's, it's almost amazing. People took the latest trinket, like the latest iPhone, <laughs> like they have it for a couple of months and the next trinket comes in. Oh, I, I need that. And it's this kind of conveyor belt of, of product that people are have, I think, been trained by clever marketers to consume. But I think that the key to long lasting business, I don't think that model is too sustainable, is is really to care about people and have them care about you as well. And, and Andrew, I think you can testify to this because we we surveyed your deliverance community. We asked them, why did you back deliverance? And a huge portion of the people said, I wanted to support Andrew personally in getting this off the ground and making this a reality. So there was this sincere desire for people to help Andrew as a person, not as a corporation, not as a product, mm-hmm. but help him as a person to get this product out. And in return, they would also get this product that would help them and help their families enjoy some time around the table. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really key. That's what I'm sort of drawing from this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I uh, have the kind of a similar concept in my head of um, if you treat people like a wallet, they'll treat you like a commodity. If they want your stuff, they'll they'll buy it. And if not, they don't care if you feed your family or not. They have no stake in it. You don't care about them. They, you know, they'll treat you like if they need you, I'll, t- I'll use you. Whereas if you treat people as though they matter, you know, like uh, the difference, you know, for all our people listening, you have an email on your list. That email represents a human. There is a human behind that email with wants, needs, desires, and so on. And if you treat that person like an email, then they're going to treat you like a consumable product. Um, They don't care about your cause. They don't care about how great your thing is, how revolutionary it is, how much it's needed or whatever. They think, oh, you know, if I want it, I'll buy it. Otherwise, I don't care about you. 
you know, you don't care about me. So why would I care about you? One of my goals always with, uh, when communicating with my deliverance people is just gratitude that they care about this. And also it's like, we're together. I'm, I'm part of a tribe. This is my deliverance. These are my people. And I think that if you treat people like they matter in all the things that you do in your correspondence, then that's, I mean, that's how to do it. But to that end, Rosemary, what are some ways that you can make someone feel like they matter? You know, like let's say beyond reverse mortgages, beyond selling board games and, you know, things like that. What are ways that you can treat someone so that they feel like they matter to you? One thing that I do in my marketing is a little old fashioned. I write notes after I write follow-up notes after I've met somebody or I've had an initial contact or somebody sends me. So I'll, so I've taken the time to, to get the stamp, to put the return address and to actually put something in writing, not a text, not an email. It shows up on your doorstep. So that's the, I matter part. I want to go back to something you said though, that's complete opposite of what we're chatting about. Look at the success of QVC. Oh my gosh. And I'll go to someone's home and they'll say, there'll be packages lined up at the door, not even opened. But (laughs) the QVC mentality is you need this now. It's the latest, greatest, whatever it is. And people buy into that. It's it's Mm -hmm. that mentality, the QVC mentality, that's complete opposite of what we're chatting about. Yeah, Yet man. it's so prevalent and it's a very successful company. It's it's very interesting. I, I find, uh, you know, Lori on Shark Tank, the queen of QVC. Oh, I love Shark Tank. Yeah, it's Shark Tank. If anybody, you know, listening to this wants to see the way to just, I mean, there's so much that is not recorded on Shark Tank, but you can really get some serious gems if you um, do listen to Shark Tank. I actually had a client go to Shark Tank once and get a deal. Which one? Because I've been watching it for 15 years. Uh, Bambooey. <laughs> oh, really? Bambooey. Yeah. It's such a smart show. It is yeah. so smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my favorite show. Yeah. I love, love, love that and Jeopardy are in first and second place. Um, it, I'm all I don't, right now. I'm all about uh, anything that Gordon Ramsay does. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Shark Tank. Love me some Shark Tank. Yeah, but but it's smart. And what I love is the entrepreneur, this is the early days of Shark Tank, will come along and they bake this wonderful pie and now they want to market it. Well, all they know how to do is bake a pie. They don't know the business side. They don't mm-hmm. know you know, hiring people and all that. And the Shark Tank people will take them on or not as an investment. But I love what that teaches people is, yeah, you've got this great pie, but there's a whole lot of business behind it to make that a successful business. Yep. Yep. And it's funny, you know, sometimes people, they don't see the vision that you have. And sometimes it's those people that are wrong. My favorite episode of Shark Tank was the one where this guy came on with a dorky, stupid doorbell that nobody wanted. Yes. And then he sold, uh, what was it a year later to Amazon for a yes. billion dollars? Yes. It became a ring doorbell. Yes. Um, I um, love that story. That was, yeah. And then he, came, he actually came back on Shark Tank as yes. an investor. Yes, he did. A year or two later. It was like season five. I think he came back. Whatever. Scrub Daddy thing is a sponge in your sink. And it's like (laughs) the most successful product ever. I mean, that show is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 
Yeah. The UK version is the Dragon's Den. So if you ever wanted to catch up on other episodes, then look up the Dragon's Den. It's it's the same thing. So you might really get, interesting. Yeah. That's awesome. It's same awesome. Definitely. Yeah. It, it's it's awesome. So the I guess the conclusion that I have, you know, we we kind of frame the podcast in the beginning as how to win friends and influence people, but it seems like maybe a more appropriate podcast uh, title would be establishing. Or building relationships versus like making transactions like that. Um, and mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, you, when you learn what somebody, what, what somebody wants, you can then help them get what they want or learn some what somebody needs. You know, you can foster a desire uh, in your product if it meets that need. And in that case, you're not actually being the used car salesman. You're being somebody that is helpful and it's actually good that they would buy this thing from you if it meets a need that they have. You know, a lot of the time with Kickstarter or, you know, anything like that, you're you're dealing in products that are not, you know, satisfying a physiological safety need or something. You're dealing in, in a consumable product that is uh, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, over at the top, like the desire, things that I think that I want. And, you know, but you can... You can ascertain what somebody is looking to buy by asking them or maybe by finding the tribe that cares about that and, and talking the language of the people. Right. So anyway, just uh, some some final thoughts to conclude us. But uh, I'll also say, Rosemary, it's been a real, real pleasure talking with you. You're a breath of fresh air. I I wish we could just, you know. We definitely have to have you back on just to talk more about that stuff. You're a wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, this is fun. You let me spout off my mouth about stuff that I'm adamant. And <laughs> and at my son all will call me and say, um, uh, Mom, how's your supply of duct tape doing? I said, why? He says, well, it's on sale at Home Depot. You might need more because you're always spouting off your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's kind Man. of funny. Well, uh, well, thank you again. Thank you. And, um, is there just, you know, if, if anybody wants to connect with you and, and, you know, we, we will put up a post about this in our crowdfunding nerds community on Facebook, which I'll, I'll make sure to invite you to, so you can correspond there, but how else would somebody get in contact with you if they, uh, you know, if they, if they so wanted to do that? Um, my website is rosemaryreverse.com. So it's, sort of easy. And on there, there's whiteboard videos that explain reverse, my phone number, all the contact information is there. And if you just want to know about this reverse mortgage product, just give me a call. You know, uh, I'll be happy to take you down a path, um, dispel many of the myths that are out there and love to help people. That's awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. And uh, we'll have Robot Richard send us on out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.